Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. As we'll be looking at the first part of this. What we have here is Saul's conversion. And we will be looking at that event in two parts. So today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask for help with it. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would use it to instruct us, uh, to teach our hearts as we have read in your word this morning. This is what you do for your people, and we are in desperate need of it. We would seek to instruct ourselves, but yet you do so through your word. Your word convicts us even when we don't want that. So Lord, we pray that we would be willing to see our own sin here today, that we would then seek after you, who is the perfecter of our faith. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So in order to introduce this passage today, turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. in there after the book of Ezekiel. Some of you guys can probably find it faster than me. So here in Daniel chapter 4, we have the king, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler of Babylon. If you read the previous portion of this book, he's had some dealings with Daniel, who was a prophet, and Daniel is here, is interpreting his dreams. And now here, starting at verse 28... We're going to have one of those dreams come to fulfillment. So I'll start at verse 28. All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there was a voice, or a, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate, ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as an eagle's feathers, and his nails were like a bird's claws. So remember who Nebuchadnezzar was. He was one of the kings of one of the greatest empires in the history of the world, the kingdom of Babylon. Not, Not good, but they were mighty. And once he thinks he's got it all, he's standing up on his roof and he's like, look at all what my hands have done for me. He takes this mighty fall and becomes like an animal in the pasture. His dreams had predicted this, which you can read earlier again in the chapter. And again, he thought he had finally made it. God had other plans for him, though. He caused Nebuchadnezzar to be driven out 
from among men to become insane. If you read history, history bears this out about this man. Babylon, from this point, actually began to crumble. They never had another good king if they ever had one to begin with. So in our text today, we have a similar kind of fall. This time with the Apostle Paul, who was known as Saul at the time in this passage. Saul was at the height of his persecution of the church and was doing a a good job of it. Again, not, not a good thing, but he was doing a good job of that. Until the Lord had other plans for him. The Lord caused Saul to be thrown off his horse and suffer in his name. Both of these narratives show the Reformed doctrine of what we call irresistible grace. The idea that man is powerless to a God who calls whomever he pleases, however and whenever he pleases. He is a God who always gets his man or woman whose plans are never foiled. This is going to be one of the areas of our focus today. But secondly, I want to focus on what the Lord's going to say to Ananias in our passage. I will show him how much he will suffer in my name, for my name. Maybe you've heard someone say before that as Christians, we share in the sufferings of Christ. This is a very complex idea, but it's one that we will develop more and more as we grow in Christ. But I think it's very important We live in a world that suffers ultimately because of its own unbelief. As believers, we must see the difference in this worldly kind of suffering versus the kind that we can and should be experiencing as believers. And so as we look at this text, I want to consider those two ideas. Again, the nature of conversion and then sharing of the sharing of Christ's sufferings. So with that, let's look at the text. Acts chapter 9, the first 16 verses. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings of the children and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer 
for the sake of my name. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just a quick review. We haven't seen Saul in a little while. So the last time we heard about Saul, he was holding the coats at the execution of Stephen. And then he was going over through the countryside, persecuting the church. The text tells us that he was going door to door, basically dragging people out of their homes, having them arrested. It happened so much that the believers associated the name of Saul with this great fear, as we read Ananias, says in this passage. Of course, this is the first of many stories that we'll see from Saul, who will be called Paul later. Next week, we're going to focus on the change that takes place in Paul, as as it does with, with all believers. Originally, I had planned to do the first 31 verses of this uh, chapter, but realized that that was going to be a bit of a, a bit of a task, and so I decided we could break it up, and I wanted to not glance over what what Jesus says to Ananias concerning how Paul was going to suffer in his name, and I think that's important for us to see as believers, and so I decided to go ahead and break this up into two parts, and so that brings us to the first point, the nature of conversion, verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them to Jerusalem. So we see here in Acts chapter 9, Saul is still actively persecuting the church. He went to the high priest and basically had these Letters written to the synagogues in Damascus, which I looked it up, and by historical accounts, there may have been as many as 40 different synagogues in Damascus. The, ba- the letters basically stated that if there were Christians there, that Paul could bring them in, the old-fashioned way. Drag them in before the high priest. This would have been very dangerous for the early church there in Damascus. They were in the synagogues, of course, sharing the good news. That was kind of their their way of doing things then. This would have cut their legs out from underneath them this early on. It would have taken the leaders out of the church, those who were actually out there teaching and preaching. This would have been a crippling blow. And so God intervenes according to his divine plan all along. It's not as if God said, oh, we better stop this. No, this was, this was God's plan all along. And so look with me at verses, verse 3 and following. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. So Saul is riding along. He has this bag full of these letters and he's thrown off his horse and he's spoken to by Jesus himself. You can imagine this entourage that Paul, that Saul has with him that they see this happen. They may see the light. They, they may hear some voices, but the guy who's in charge gets thrown off his horse and all of a sudden is talking to nothing and can't see all of a sudden. They, they know something's going on, but they can't see exactly what Saul did or hear what he heard. Who are you, Lord? 
is how Saul recognizes, he, or Saul responds. He recognizes this is not a normal thing. This is a divine thing. This kind of makes me think of, of the Lord talking to Samuel when Samuel was a little boy. Much different circumstances, obviously. But that same idea, what did Samuel say? Well, who, who is this? Remember, Saul was a Pharisee. He knew the Scriptures pretty well. He knew the stories of God speaking to people. But now he's able to put a name with that voice, the name of Jesus. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Was he actually persecuting Jesus? No, not the physical Jesus, but he was persecuting believers. And to do that was to persecute the Lord himself and to be against the Lord himself. He was blinded and he was given instructions to go to the city. And he goes. What choice did he have? So the question I think is important for us to answer here is, did Saul seek out the Lord? Was Saul on this trip to Damascus in order to find to find the Lord? Was he seeking out something? Did Saul weigh out the intellectual options between belief and unbelief and decide that belief was a better option for him because it made more intellectual sense? No. He was thrown off his horse and blinded. Did he willfully respond? No. In Acts 26, he actually, this is, the, this is one of three accounts of, of his conversion. Uh, if, if, the, if the author, Luke, decides he's going to include something three times in this book, it's probably important. Saul told his story over and over, we're sure. So in Acts 26, he's telling King Agrippa his story. And he adds a detail that we don't get here in chapter 9. That Jesus asks him the question, Saul, why are you kicking against the goads? What does that mean? Back then they probably used it as a phrase. We could, we have a similar kind of phrase. Why are you fighting against something that you can't fight against? What is a goad? An ox goad was basically a stick. A long pointy stick that they used to point or to stick the oxen so that they would move forward. It was sharp. It was pointy. We get the idea. It's trying to force this giant animal that you can't force any other way to move. And to kick against it, if you're the ox, is to simply cause yourself more injury. And you're still going to have to move anyway. Did Saul come willingly? No. He kicked against the goads. And he was goaded nonetheless. Was he wooed? By a gentle Savior who begged him, saying, Please, Saul, won't you just change your heart and come to me? No. Again, Jesus' tactic was to flash a blinding light and to toss this man off his horse. Then immediately compel him to walk into a city blind and wait for instructions. This, brothers and sisters, is a picture of conversion. This stands in stark contrast to the picture painted by many today. We need to see this. It's important for us, particularly as we do evangelism, as we share the gospel in a lost world. I was once the leader of worship at a church camp for kids. It was probably uh, middle school, 7th and 8th grade kids. And I was leading the worship there, and the camp director told me that tonight was going to be a particularly important 
uh, talk, and it was going to be a very, it was going to be one that would provoke emotions, and that he wanted to make sure that I picked music that would also, in turn, provoke those emotions, because, quote, we will get a better response if they are worked up emotionally. The message was filled with stories, again, meant to evoke these emotions, and I was meant to polish them off with the music that was meant to do the same. You can probably guess what I chose to do. Or other examples that I've heard. I've heard folks that would appeal to the intellect, saying, well, here are some apologetic proofs that no unbeliever can ever weasel out of as if you can prove to them that God exists and then they'll follow him because winning an argument is akin to converting a soul. What's the problem with both of these? The heart and mind of fallen men and women is broken. They don't work. In order to respond to feelings and arguments, they have to have this heart and mind be switched on, turned on. And the only one that can switch that broken heart and mind on is the one who created that heart and that mind. The creator alone has the power to fix the broken heart and the broken mind, which Saul had as he was going down the road to Damascus. He doesn't do that with the consent of the believer. Show me one time in Scripture where the Lord goes to someone, is it okay if I change your heart? No. Some who have tried to protect God's character have said things like, well, God is a gentleman. and He would never make someone believe without their consent, aligning God's changing of the sinner's heart to an act of rape, which is silly and ridiculous. Here's the problem with that. The sinner cannot give consent. They are dead in their trespasses. The only thing they can do with God is hate Him and exchange the truth that He offers for a lie unless, of course, God Himself intervenes, which is exactly what we see here on the road to Damascus. God Himself intervening in the life of Saul, who was a hater and a persecutor of Christ. So what should this do for us? How should this affect us? For me, as a young believer, when, when I was a younger believer, this was one of the most comforting aspects of my faith, that God was in control and that he came to me. He came to me. Quickly after my own conversion, I began rereading the Gospels Understanding this idea that now that I'm reading them as a Christian, the Lord is going to bring new understanding and new depth to me. And it was apparent to me that salvation wasn't from me very early on. Didn't get halfway through Matthew before I understood that. But it's from God. It originates with God. Therefore, guess what? It ends with Him too. That very fact did more for my assurance as a young believer than any feel-good nonsense could ever do. I didn't have to feel God in order to know that He was there. That's good. I knew that if God chose me from among His enemies and fixed my broken heart and my broken mind, 
that he had every intention of keeping those things that he fixed. That was breathtaking to me. The heart and the mind truly changed by God will not break again. They only get better and stronger through his continued leading in our lives. Now that doesn't mean we don't experience hiccups in that. We sometimes have sustained periods even of feeling broken down. But we aren't ever unmendable again. That's important. Whatever the creator puts his hands to, that thing is now remade and it works. Even though we are fixed, we still carry with us our humanity, which is a blessing to us. And we're going to see that as we go further in this passage. And that brings us to the second point, the sharing of Christ's suffering. Look with me at verses 10 through 14. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. He has seen a vision of a man named Ananias. Come in and lay his hands on him that he may regain his sight. But listen here, Ananias, is, he's like, Whoa, as soon as he hears Saul of Tarsus, he gets spooked. And he says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, about how evil or how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So I think we can totally understand Ananias' fear, right? He wants to be an obedient servant, but this would have been hard. Lord, this man means to kill us or have us killed. Frankly, this was probably a great surprise that someone like Saul even could have been converted. Even someone like Ananias, who has seen the great works of the apostles, has seen people rise from the dead, has seen all these great things happen. You mean that Saul is converted now? And you want me to go lay my hands on him so he can see? A little strange. So we've got to get Ananias's, uh pushback here, right? It makes me think to uh, Jonah and the Ninevites. Jonah had no expectation that anyone so evil could ever be converted. Of course, the Lord had other plans. I don't read here that Ananias was upset like Jonah. I'm not saying that at all. That's a whole other issue. But he was skeptical. And the Lord sets him straight. Verses 15 and 16. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. A chosen instrument of mine. God picked him to carry out the word to the Gentiles, to the kings, to the children of Israel. Why? Who can know the mind of the Lord, right? If our hearts at all drift to this idea, well, Saul was a bad person. He shouldn't be doing ministry. All of a sudden, then we forget our own hearts before the Lord saved us. But notice what the Lord tacks on here at the end. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. These are tough words. But these are words for all of us. I think one of the most fascinating things about Paul's ministry going forward in the book 
is that you can trace it here from this very exciting beginning, and it really doesn't slow down a whole lot. Saul's life, or Paul's life, was very full. And I think as we read through this, and then even read in the epistles, we get the idea of what Jesus meant by, He will suffer for my name's sake. He, his travels. Consider the travels of, of Saul or Paul. Taking many years off his life. For what? So that he could start churches. Train leaders. Strengthen and encourage the flock. Sometimes deal with hard issues. Many of the places that he goes to are not hospitable at all. Many of them. More than once he's beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and stranded and all these horrible, horrible things over and over again. We see that Paul's ministry is definitely one of suffering. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Where he gives us an idea of what this means to him. How did, how did Paul, the apostle, later writing these letters to the churches, how did he see his own suffering? Chapter 3, starting at verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order, to, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is how he saw the sufferings that he was going through. None of us are called to suffer like the Apostle Paul, I don't believe. But to one degree or another, this must be a reality in our faith. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Again, the Apostle Paul talking about suffering. And I want to read the first 12 verses here because it's important for us to see this whole concept being played out. And again, here as I'm reading this idea of suffering and what that means and, and how then our suffering is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. It says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we did not lose heart or do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of, of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of the world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
But we have this treasure, he's talking about the gospel, this treasure in jars of clay, talking about himself, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body of death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. What is he saying here? First of all, note that he is seeing the same idea of conversion that he was shown himself as he was thrown off his horse on the road to Damascus. The Lord calls whom he will. Those whom he calls can see and hear the word. Those whom he doesn't cannot. We still preach the gospel, teach the gospel, knowing that God is working on the hearts and minds of people and that he will use the gospel in order to do his will. And we also see this idea of suffering. He says, we are afflicted in every way. What is their affliction? Verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Verse 12, so death is at work in us, but life in you. What does he say? They are giving of themselves so that the life of Christ can be shown in them to others for the glory of God, for those to whom they are doing ministry. This is important because many times in ministry, the thing that costs us so much, consider what ministry is like. Resources, time, energy, peace of mind, all of these things we have to sacrifice. Why? For the benefit of someone else. Ministry isn't about doing work out of our convenience, but about doing work out of our weakness. Why do you think Christian kids and even adults who have this awakening type experience when they go on short-term mission trips. Why is that? Because it involves some sort of suffering. For the first time in their lives, oftentimes, they're experiencing having to give up something of themselves so that someone else may experience joy. That is the true life of the believer. Why are they awakened all of a sudden? Because that's the intent. They are inconvenienced and they finally see the picture of what it means to suffer and to share in the sufferings of Christ. How does that contrast with the way that we see the church? How does that contrast with the way that what we see all around us? Think about some of the things that you hear people say about the church. Well, we want a church that serves our needs. We just didn't feel like our needs were being met. We weren't being blessed. We want to be somewhere that will bless us. How does one share in the sufferings of Christ? By getting? No. By being a blessing. By giving. How does one receive infinite blessings? By being a blessing themselves. 
In the last part, uh, read with me if you're still in Second Corinthians chapter or Second Corinthians four. Look at verses sixteen through eighteen. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Though we're giving of ourselves, and this is costing us much. For Paul, this was costing him his livelihood. This was horrible. The trips and just just read that we're going to be going through the book of Acts. It's horrible for him. But what did this do for him? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is how they are renewed. How are they renewed in their inner selves? By being used up in their outer self. This is preparing us for our heavenly home, the eternal weight of glory. What's in store for the believer in heaven far outweighs or has much more significance than the momentary affliction that we suffer here on earth. Serving others is a way that we show our understanding of that truth. So what do we do with this info? Question, does your faith currently cost you something? Meaning, how would you say that your faith is causing you to serve others? Is it? If not, then you're only experiencing a tiny fraction of what it means to serve Christ and experience the real fruit of the Christian life. Does that mean that we should all suffer like Paul? No. It's obvious from reading here that he has given a special portion of this suffering to our benefit. However, it does mean that if our Christianity is always comfortable, we may only be serving ourselves. As a church, we may have all been on the receiving end of this kind of service. Definitely we have been, where someone has sacrificed so that we could thrive. On the other side of that, many are also sacrificing so that others can thrive. And so obviously this is going on. But we can't do enough. In conclusion, the question is then, what are we doing so that the name of Christ might be known? How are we sharing in the sufferings of Christ? This isn't very feel-good, and I know that. But it is a question, because the world doesn't always receive it very well. Remember, they have broken hearts and minds. However, we are called to serve not only each other, but also the world around us. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How then are we doing this for our enemies? Brothers and sisters, rest in the fact that our Creator has called us and He keeps us safe. And that's, that's all we need to know. But also let us consider how we might share in His sufferings that His name might be known. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, admittedly, I have a very comfortable faith. And I don't like to be put out because of my faith. And so, Lord, I pray 
that you would use your word to convict us of this sin, that we would more and more share in your sufferings, that for your name's sake, people would come to know you, that your name would be glorified, that your name would be praised. And so, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.